It is ridiculous what airs we put on to seem profound, while our hearts gasp dying for want of love. Let's hear that one more time. It is ridiculous what airs we put on. It's ridiculous the things that we do, all the things that we do to seem profound or different, uh, intelligent, uh, witty, whatever it is. These things are ridiculous, the things that we do, when actually our hearts are just gasping, dying for want of love. It's ridiculous, isn't it? Uh, that comes from William Carlos Williams, his great long poem that he wrote near the end of his life, uh, the love poem that he wrote uh, for his wife, Asphodel, That Greeny Flower. It's about 20 or 25 pages. But those, what, uh, five or six lines have always just killed me. Now, on the one hand, you could spend the next hour talking about what those airs are. What are those ridiculous airs that we put on to seem profound or intelligent or witty or um, uh, raw, you know, um, pure, whatever it is? Uh, we could spend the next hour talking about that. But what interests me right now is that gasping while our hearts gasp dying for want of love. What is, what is the thing in us that is gasping? What is the reason for the gasping? Why do we do the things that's to appear profound and the gasping, uh, gasp dying for want of love? In a short story, I once wrote uh, this paragraph, it seems to uh, clue us in here, at least it clues me in. It says, uh, my private obsessions are not worth mentioning. Like someone who cries over a painting or knows something about art or music or just sports or whatever their profession is. They're a poet or a doctor or an administrative assistant or they work from home doing whatever you're able to do working from home now on the computer. You're a stay-at-home dad like I've been for the last six years. Um, someone who cries over a painting or knows something about any of those things that I just mentioned. And they can go on and on and on about it, all the specifics. The, the specifics are the foundation of this person's entire life. But on some tragic level, it's totally private. They bring it up in anything like mixed company and nobody knows what the hell they're talking about. It shouldn't be like this, but nearly everything that we love, there's that word love again, uh, nearly everything that we love are just wedges. They drive people apart. They drive people away from us, drive them away because everyone, everyone else just has another wedge, their wedge. They have another love. They have millions of them that are just as strong, but they're just not ours. We have millions of them, but they aren't the loves of somebody else. And they're just as strong though. Think of religion, what that does to people of another religion or just another sports team, um, another neighborhood in a city. Uh, what it means to tell someone I moved away from X city and I love being in Y city, whatever that is, 
and the person back in X city is offended, whatever that is. We have no capacity to deal with this, I wrote in this story. We have no capacity to deal with all of this difference because it seems so threatening that we all love different things. It's so threatening. Nobody loves the things we love. Um, I find this as a poet, actually, very often. It's often more threatening than comforting, right? To come across a stranger who suddenly says that they write poetry. And then you say, well, you do as well. I, I write poetry. And suddenly there's this thing where you don't really want to talk about it. Maybe you become friends and you do talk about it. But it's this weird fucking thing, man. I, uh, but as I say in the story, it's so threatening. I just want to ask why, but it just is. Uh, we all need to crowd around something so that we can all relate to it, or we will end up ripping our throats out, burning to death. And back when I wrote this, I was reading a lot about Michelangelo, so I have him say, this character, talking about Michelangelo is not worth all of that. It's not worth all the fight, all the rancor that happens over all the pissing contests of where you went to school compared to somebody else, or whether they went to school at all, or whether you went to school at all. Uh, all the pissing contest of, I'm a parent and I'm a great parent. You don't have children at all. I'm married, but you're not married. Whatever the whole thing is that you identify with yourself, the whole pissing contest of being too attached to whatever it is that you identify yourself with, and the equal pissing contest of being so attached to what you think other people identify themselves with, of being alienated from that or threatened by whatever you think their identity is. None of this is worth all this fighting. None of this is worth this sense of identity, my character seems to say, if all it means is that we will end up ripping our throats out, right? Um, talking about Michelangelo is not worth that. Uh, the greatest works of art, uh, the things that personally fulfill us but keep us at a distance from somebody else, on some level it's just not worth it if it just isolates you, makes you feel better than everybody, or if hearing about it threatens you, or if hearing about it threatens somebody else. Nothing is worth that. Or talking about a baseball team, like I said. Uh, living in Brooklyn a few years ago, uh, Mets or Yankees, damn you uh, either side, whoever you're talking to. Uh, coming back to live uh, in Pittsburgh, visiting family in Ohio, or uh, living in California for a little bit, and going to an Angels game, and the only hat that I have is a Yankees hat, and just hearing people shit. Um, good-natured shit, but still, just people breaking your balls because you're you're in Anaheim and you're at the at their stadium and you're wearing a fucking Yankees hat. What are you doing? Um, that's the good-natured part of it, but um, you get the idea. Um, I disagree with my character in this, and I think that's one of the reasons why I was able to write it the way that I did because I don't quite believe it. Um, anyone who's listened to this podcast for the last two and a half years knows that uh, uh, one of the most important things that I think we can all do is to just learn to love the things that we love and not be threatened 
by the things that other people love if they happen to be different. But if we're talking about the gasping thing, gasp, gasping, dying for want of love, um, and the, the wedges that we put uh, between ourselves, our interests and our hobbies, and the things that we obsess about, the little walls that we build up around ourselves, the thing that William Carlos Williams is saying, um, it's not just stuff that fulfills us, but it is airs we put on to seem profound. And I've mentioned uh, many times before that one of my definitions of what art is, is that it is something that alleviates loneliness. It alleviates the loneliness of the artist, of the creator, who is usually uh, creating in solitude, even me sitting at Panera in the morning, uh, surrounded by people. Uh, I'm still writing in basic solitude. I'm feeding off the energy of people, of everyone around me, the old people who come in to talk and talk, uh, the young people who come in with their parents and get on their laptops and uh, or get on their phones, um, the people who seem to come by who I've overheard to do uh, business deals or do job interviews or just the employees. Um, I'm isolated from all of them. I feed off of their energy, but I don't talk to them. You know what I mean? And so that art is about alleviating the loneliness of the creator. And it is also about alleviating the loneliness of whoever is reading, listening, watching, or just looking at whatever it is that has been uh, created. Um, that is one of the definitions of art for me. It's one of the things that drives me because you can find this expressed almost uh, everywhere and at all times. Uh, the, the image of, uh, in this case, in many cases, it is of the poet who is uh, writing his or her poetry and they imagine the reader in the future. In my case, it would be a teenager or someone in their 20s in the future who is unsure whether they should be a writer or who is unsure about what poetry or writing can do for them, for their souls, for their lives, for their daily lives. And suddenly there is this just uh, connection immediately with someone who wrote something five, ten, a hundred, a thousand, three thousand years ago. And it's, um, it's a breathtaking thing to, uh, to suddenly have that connection. And it's a breathtaking thing to imagine that something you are writing in complete isolation right now uh, may suddenly just leap over time uh, in the far future and someone will reach back to what you were doing and, and have empathy with you and with your experience or with the character you created. Or who will, uh, in my case, I suppose, recognize the echo of another poet uh, that I am quoting or referring to, and the person in the future will understand what it means to write poetry like that, or to be attached so much to X poet that you want to uh, 
make an echo or a quotation of them in your own poetry so that your whole mind is just sort of your whole heart, really, not your mind, your heart. What I'm talking about here tonight is my heart, not my mind, um, is just filled with these interconnections, these veins of names, dates, years, uh, works of art, poems, poetries, uh, all of these things uh, you feel a great veneration and connection to. Um, and so that on, uh, on the one hand, art is about alleviating loneliness. And I realized quite simply that that is one of the reasons why uh, this podcast is so personal and why I've often said that the poetry, the art itself, on some level, the art itself, the technical ability, the whether, whether yes or no it is a good poem or a good novel or a good movie, all of that is incidental in some sense. In some sense, the poetry does not matter. If it makes a human connection, if it breaks through all the crap, all the sludge that is keeping us from connecting to other people on a daily, hourly, minute-by-minute -minute basis, um, if it cuts through all that and you have a human connection, who gives a shit about the art? Who cares whether it is art? Who cares whether it is a poem or a good poem? Um, it doesn't matter. And I think that's one of the reasons why this podcast is called Human Voices Wake Us. It's not called Poetry Wakes Us. It's not called Literary Fiction Wakes Us. It's not called Fine Art Wakes Us. Um, all of those things, at least for me, are the inroads to the greatest expressions of humanity for me. But that's not, that doesn't have to be the case. I will take something simple and human over something labored over, some heavily composed thing, however brilliant or whatever kind of piece of genius that could possibly be. Um, I'll take the human thing over it any single day of the week. The example that I always give is of just watching a good documentary. Um, the surprise for me, or the glowing example of this for me, is Ken Burns' documentary about the Dust Bowl, about what it was like living in Kansas, Oklahoma, and uh, North Texas and environs in the 1930s. Because usually Ken Burns has, uh, he's, right, he's doing his documentaries about an historical subject where uh, nobody is still alive from the time. And so he populates the, uh, the documentary with talking heads, very erudite talking heads, people who get your emotions and get your humanity very well, uh, uh, excellent writers and speakers who can talk about Lewis and Clark or the American Constitution or the Civil War or whatever it is. But here you are, suddenly, you're talking about something that happened within living memory. And in the Dust Bowl, Ken Burns is able to still have the talking heads, but what does he include alongside them? People who were children and teenagers during the Dust Bowl. And 
perhaps these people have been interviewed before uh, and have talked about their experiences as children during this time in history. Perhaps even they knew that Ken Burns was coming around, and so they tried to work something up about what they wanted to say. But there is just something so uh, brilliant and deep. It cuts straight to the heart. That image or that line of Marlon Brando's from Apocalypse Now, it's a diamond thunderbolt straight to your forehead. You've gotten it. You don't need the artifice. You don't need the labored uh, uh, technical uh, achievement of a work of art. You just have it. A pristine story told by someone who lived through an event in their childhood and they tell it so well, bam, there it fucking is, right? The example I gave last week of reading the Beatles and interviews with them when they were children was just the image of Ringo Starr, of George Starkey as he was known as a child. Um, the memories he had of his grandfather and coming into the living room and there was a chair that his grandfather sat in and uh, he didn't give it up for anybody. That is where grandpa sat. And he would go and sit there when the chair was empty, but his, all his grandfather had to do was walk into the room and just look at him. And he would get his ass out of the seat. His grandpa would sit in the chair. Something like that. Um, I'm beginning to realize that uh, I will take anything like that over James Joyce's Ulysses, which would have been the standard bearer of my youth. I look at Ulysses now and, and things like it, and I see it for what it is. I had a grand time studying it, but it is nothing to a simple, uh, I want to say a simple declarative sentence, but that's Hemingway's line, isn't it? But just a simple story told um, that might be a half page long if you happen to type it out. But I think, as I said again, that is why this podcast is so personal. It's not just about um, a good poem. Hey, my name is Tim. I know these poems. I'm going to read you poems that I think are really good. From the beginning, I realized that that just wasn't enough for me. I had to say, here is a good poem. This is when I discovered it. This is what I've learned about the author. This is what all of it means to my own life and what poetry means to my own life, my own heart, as I've been saying, talking about my heart here, not my intellect, not, uh, not any of that. This is straight heart. And what I'm getting at here, this is about 20 minutes in and you're finally getting a hint of what I'm getting at. Um, gasp dying for want of love. Art is about alleviating loneliness, the loneliness of the creator or of the audience. And the question that I want to ask is, that's all very well and good, but what if the loneliness of, I'm speaking specifically of the creator here, of my own uh, miniature crises here, but I'm sure it's a wider one too. What if 
your loneliness is actually not relieved? What if you actually are not reaching anybody? You're spending all your time creating X, Y, and Z poem, story, podcast, right? Uh, you're making your movie, you're, uh, uh, you're submitting your stuff, and it's no, 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 and no. No one will take it. Rejections all down the line. Um, but what happens then? And I want to read a small poem by John Keats here, which I think gets to the core of this. John Keats, of course, died um, in his middle 20s. And listen to, to what uh, John Keats says here. Um, this is a poem called, When I Have Fears That I May Cease to Be. Uh, when I have fears that I may cease to be, before my pen has gleaned my teeming brain, before high-piled books and charactery hold like rich garners the full ripened grain, when I behold upon the night-starred face huge cloudy symbols of a high romance, and think that I may never live to trace their shadows with the magic hand of chance. And when I feel, fair creature of an hour, that I shall never look upon thee more, never have relish in the fairy power of unreflecting love, then on the shore of the wide world I stand alone and think, till love and fame to nothingness do sink. And for this podcast, anyhow, for my heart, for my concerns, it's amazing to me that John Keats, 1795 to 1821, what are the two things that sink to nothingness in this last line? Love, I've been asking about love a lot lately, and fame, the entire podcast is about is about that, about dealing with the jealousy of not being as read or known as I wish that I could be, because I seem to think in the back of my mind that that would suddenly solve all of my problems, even though I know that it would not. But love and fame to nothingness do sink. And why? Why do they sink to nothingness for John Keats? Because he has fears that he may cease to be because he has fears that he will die before his pen has gleaned his teeming brain, before he has had time to write it all down. And I believe in this book that uh, the poems of John Keats that I have are arranged chronologically, so I'm pretty sure that that poem comes before his great year where he writes his famous odes, Ode on a Grecian Urn, and the rest of them. So you can tell that, in a sense, sort of like, uh, sort of like Whitman talking about, uh, you're not going to find any of this in books. He keeps writing poetry, though, doesn't he? Um, John Keats is wondering, this is his fear, but uh, he keeps writing anyway. Maybe he wants to make sure that his pen gleans his teeming brain before he does die. Um, when I have fears that I may cease to be, before my pen has gleaned my teeming brain, before high-piled books and charactery hold like rich garners the full ripened grain, 
When I behold upon the night starred face huge cloudy symbols of a high romance, and think that I may never live to trace their shadows with the magic hand of chance. What are you telling me? I am a poet and you're telling me that I am looking on beauty right now, symbols of high romance, but I may never live to trace them, to trace their shadows with the magic hand of chance. The, uh, the great just uh, exhaustion, the, uh, the feeling of anxiety of someone sitting on your chest, right? Um, that everyone seems to know these days, post-2020. The great feeling of anxiety of that, of that knot in the middle of your chest where your heart should be. Or sort of the opposite, that great, uh, that great sort of emptying nervousness that just makes the, the tips of your fingers tingle and you don't know what the hell is wrong. I mean, that, that, that huge feeling that just envelops you now and then when that kind of feeling takes over. Um, the feeling that you uh, won't be able to, to get the work done that you believe you were put here to do. But also, I think, what that sort of reflects is that maybe there is the fear that that perhaps um, was not the work that you should actually be doing. So when I say um, what ridiculous airs we put on to seem profound when we gasp dying for want of love, when I say that art is about alleviating loneliness for the creator and for the audience, but when I say, uh, on the one hand, poetry actually does not matter, when I say that I will take something simply human over this labored thing, over <coughs> sitting down uh, in a crowd of people and deciding to write a poem, not going to talk to people, but writing a poem. When I say that I would take the simply human over that act of isolating yourself in a crowd. When I say that this is why the podcast is personal, and then swing back around and say, what if the loneliness is not relieved after all? What if I am actually not reaching anybody? Um, that line from John Lennon, also from last week when I was talking about the Beatles, where he says, you don't belong, uh, you'll never belong, because you simply cannot belong. Uh, at what point do you, do, do I, uh, put down the things that I have been doing and perhaps see them as airs to seem profound, as putting on airs to seem profound. At what point do I put down the things that I have been doing because they're actually just uh, wedges to keep someone who's not very comfortable socially from ever having to enter a social situation, if you get my meaning there. Um, at what point do I maybe look at my own writing or even this own podcast as something that I don't need to be doing because it actually isn't alleviating the great loneliness that I feel. Or, on the other hand, in that great, that great Buddhist sense, right, of uh, it's not about looking for happiness and it's not about uh, 
avoiding pain either. Um, both of those, both of those extremes, avoiding one and looking for the other, are mistakes. The meat of it all, and I think that this is also true in Judaism, and that's why I love it so much. The meat of it all is actually in the suffering, questioning, um, mind-wracked, uh, anxious, nervous, uncertain moment. And so how much of that should I take, or should you take, or should any of us take, and just say that, well, that is the creative process, or that is what it takes to be a teacher, that is what it takes to raise my child, that's what it takes to be a scientist, a lawyer, a doctor, a baseball player, um, a garbage man, a, a, a basketball coach, a paralegal, a whatever you can think of. Uh, how much of this sense of loneliness and uncertainty is just what the hell you put up with? And how much of it is something that maybe you learn to change your mind about things? I realized uh, today at the grocery store, I saw something on the front page of like People magazine, and it was a picture of an actor, it doesn't matter who it was, and underneath that was the caption, my painful untold story. And I realized I can go back and just delete the episodes I did on jealousy, because I think that the jealousy that people feel, which is connected to the loneliness that people feel, it's certainly connected to my sense of loneliness, the jealousy that people feel, the hatred we feel towards uh, anyone who's famous and who suddenly slips up and you are ready to just see their heads get cut off. You're ready to see them get canceled and rejected and forgotten and just stomped on and never work again. You are ready for that, but why? I think I had a sort of insight into that this morning when I saw the picture of the actor and the caption, my painful untold story. Because I think for many of us, we look at that and we say, wait a fucking minute here. I have a painful untold story and yet this person is the one who gets on the cover of the magazine. On the one hand, part of that might be all of us realizing uh, People Magazine and the actor, they both have very good publicity machines, and that maybe all of this is, in a sense, fabricated or exaggerated uh, to uh, get people's sympathy or to just get someone's name somewhere because they have a movie coming out or a book coming out or whatever it is. But... I think the core of it really is that there is the sense that people are not listening to me, people are not listening to us, people are not listening to the things that I have gone through, that many of us have gone through, and instead they're listening to somebody else. And they're listening to that somebody else for a reason that has nothing to do with their experience and only because they are quote-unquote uh, famous. We feel as if we are not being listened to. We feel that we're being ignored. We feel that we don't have the 
people around us or the words to articulate our experiences, our pains, our joys, whatever it is, the experience of being alive. We feel in some way that we perhaps don't have the right, uh, the right words to talk about it, and we don't know the right people to talk about it with, and so we are stuck feeling immensely lonely with ourselves. And loneliness is not just the poet sitting in his car recording a podcast. It isn't just his problem. Um, loneliness is everywhere these days, even though we are all supposedly so interconnected, aren't we? And for me, the loneliness uh, comes from what I mentioned earlier, where I write a poem, I write a story, I write a long story, I write a short story, I write a long poem, write a short poem, uh, write a novel, and basically straight down the line, no, 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 and no. Rejections down the line um, for basically all of it. Um, and then, uh, since I've been at home with my daughter since she was born, um, every few years, and I've changed up the ways that I've done this, I've tried to find part-time, full-time, uh, whatever time, uh, jobs at local museums, libraries, newspapers, magazines, whatever it is, and no, 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 and no. Um, anyone who's listened to this podcast, it, it, is it weird that I can't get a job at a library? I don't know. Is it strange that I can't get a job as a greeter at a library? Um, I, I don't get it. I don't understand. And that's what makes me wonder if maybe I'm just going about all of this in some completely weird, completely wrong way. I'm not talking about just getting a job, um, but just of the things that I do, the things that I'm interested, the things that I tend towards and suddenly take a deep dive into. Um, what if all of those things are wrong? If, as I say, uh, poet, uh, art is about alleviating loneliness, but that the art itself, the technical aspect of it, a successful work of art, doesn't matter. If what I'm actually looking for is the human moment, the personal moment, um, is there something else that I should be doing? I was, in my notes here, I've written, what is the shortcut to humanity that poetry fiction, folklore, uh, all the genres you can think of, detective fiction, um, uh, fairy tales, horror stories, science fiction, literary stories, epic poems, narrative poems, all of these things. Um, if that's not a shortcut to getting to the humanity of an audience that uh, I somehow cannot find or not find to my satisfaction, um, what are the things that perhaps um, would fill it. Love, family, children, uh, nature, experience of nature, of ritual, of, of becoming involved in a religion. Um, but then, what if you don't have any of those things? What if you don't have love? If you're not in love? What if you don't know what the hell that even is like? 
what if you don't have a family? What if you live far away from your family or your extended family are all assholes? What if you don't have children? Or what if you do have children, but you are completely floundering and don't, know, don't think you know what the hell you're doing and you're very hard on yourself about the whole thing? Um, what if you love nature and you go out in nature, but you can only do it so many times during the day and it's never enough? Or it's never what you think it should be. What if you are a part of a organized religion or some version that you've concocted to be a part of something, and even that has its moments of being hollowed out and empty? What do you do? What is satisfaction? What is enough? Um, I've been uh, listening to the song by the Traveling Wilburys on repeat lately, usually. Uh, as my daughter told me, she uh, uh, sort of realized it and can just say it to me now because she is that good. She says, why do you like so much sad music? So I've been listening to the Traveling Wilbury song, uh, End of the Line, a lot recently. Uh, George Harrison, Bob Dylan, Roy Orbison, Tom Petty, and one other guy. And it's just a rollicking great time. It is such a happy song. And it says... Uh, one of the lyrics says, it's all right if you've got someone to love, but what if you don't have someone to love? What are you supposed to do with yourself? Um, what if you thought you had someone to love and that love has turned into something completely unexpected and strange? And so you seem to have found yourself, uh, as T.S. Eliot says, uh, uh, where you started and you know the place for the first time. Um, what if nothing that you've been heading towards has really worked out the way that you thought that it would? And in my case, the question has always been, should I keep writing? Should I keep uh, drowning myself in poetry? Since November, I've been just going through a tear of anthologies and just finding all the my favorite poems I could possibly find and just reading them over and over and then putting them into a little book and reading them again and just seeing what a great balm, what a great lift uh, that is. Or I go out in the morning and try and write something new and I see what a great lift it is to suddenly see a character come alive, or suddenly see a poem go in a surprising way and still find its way in a clean flourish at the end. But what if all of that is just the airs I am putting on to seem profound? What am I avoiding? What am I not doing uh, right? Perhaps there's no problem at all, and it really is just that thing of not trying to avoid this, not hoping for that, just being the hub in the center of the wheel, letting everything spin around me, and keeping my focus. Maybe that's it. Um, but the, the greatest lesson for me, at least from the point of view of a poet, actually comes from, uh, comes from Walt Whitman, who spend so much time, as I've mentioned in my episodes about him, 
spent so much time. He lived from 1819 to 1892. Leaves of Grass was first published in 1855. He spent so much of his time uh, uh, just expressing this persona of this outwardly garrulous and personable person who is free and open with his words, free and open with his body, free and open with his soul. He can go anywhere, he can be with anybody, he can do anything. But at the bottom, there is something terribly lonesome about Walt Whitman. Um, only someone who, I mean, if he was actually doing all of those things, he wouldn't have time to write the poems, now would he? Um, and the image I mentioned before of, actually, I can just probably just, uh, just read it right now. Let me see. Where he says, Have you reckoned a thousand acres much? Have you reckoned the earth much? Have you practiced so long to learn to read? Have you felt so proud to get at the meaning of poems? Stop this day and night with me, and you shall possess the origin of all poems. You shall possess the good of the earth and sun. There are millions of suns left. You shall no longer take things at second or third hand, nor look through the eyes of the dead, nor feed on the specters and books. You shall not look through my eyes either, nor take things from me. You shall listen to all sides and filter them from yourself. And meanwhile, in the next page, he says, Loaf with me on the grass, loose the stop from your throat. Not words, not music or rhyme I want, not custom or lecture, not even the best. Only the lull I like, the hum of your valve's voice. I mind how we lay in June, such a transparent summer morning. You settled your head athwart my hips and gently turned over upon me and parted the shirt from my bosom bone and plunged your tongue to my bare-stripped heart and reached till you felt my beard and reached till you held my feet. And there is a sense from that, from reading both of those two things together, that the second passage I read is a bit of wish fulfillment, a bit of fantasy, a bit of what Whitman wanted to take place. And the first thing I read where he's talking about going beyond books and have you, do you think that you have reckoned poetry so well? Um, he's constantly talking about how poetry is not it. And yet, what does he do? He keeps on writing his poetry. He puts this idea that poetry is not it. Poetry is not good enough. You need to go out in public and be with people and talk with people. And he's putting all of these declarations of being personable and amiable and happy and uh, and public, mystical, and all of this, he's putting all of it into the silence of the page, isn't he? Um, his greatest poem, at least to my mind, is Crossing Brooklyn Ferry, where what does he do? He's not crossing Brooklyn Ferry with the people in his own time. 
He's crossing Brooklyn Ferry with you and with me because he seems to know he he has this this huge uh, sense of inspiration and insight and mysticism and godness and holiness and sacredness uh, inside of him. And he knows that he has the words to express just what this is like, this connection that everyone can have to everyone else and that everyone can have to the past, the present, and the future. He knows all of this, but nobody, hardly anybody, that he encounters on a day-to-day -day basis gives a shit at all or even listens or even takes him seriously. There's that image of him that, uh, that I found in someone's, someone's memoir from the 1850s, because of course Whitman was a, a journalist before he was a poet. And there's the image of Whitman down in one of the basement bars in Manhattan in the late 1850s, where all the other journalists go and where he's going to, and they all know that he's the guy who published that weird book of poems. And they all sort of uh, gently mock him, don't they? And he's just sitting there, this great garrulous poet sitting there up against the wall by himself, quiet, not talking uh, to anybody. And the great lesson I take from his life after that is that he goes down to Washington, D.C. during the Civil War and becomes a nurse in the hospitals for the Union wounded, and he uh, spends a good year or more there. I think he gets there in early 1862, and I think by the time of Gettysburg in July of 1863, he has left. So he's there for at least a year. And what does he do here? He uh, he tends to these young men. He writes letters for them. He makes a show of himself, not because, not for once, because he is Walt Whitman, an American, a cosmos, uh, not because he is his persona, but because he wants to present himself uh, decently and with compassion, I would say, to these wounded men who are dying, who are far from home, who are far from home for the first times in their lives, in many cases, from the farm to the battlefield to the hospital in Washington, D.C. Um, he wants to show respect to these young men, and so he dresses up and sort of perfumes himself. He goes and buys liquor and candy and food. Um, he does what he can to befriend these men, and he sits by them uh, when they die, and so many of them do die in his presence, and he falls in love with many of them, we know that. Uh, he has these sad, painful letters that he writes to the soldiers who don't die, who get up and they go back to serving in the war, and he sends them gifts of clothes. He sends them, you know, like long johns and underwear and, and, and just just these things. And he is sad to see them go and he weeps over these men. 
and he weeps over them in part because the affection, the kind of affection that he feels for them, is not the kind of affection that you are really uh, allowed to show publicly back in the 1850s, and because it seems that Whitman himself was would have been unable to express himself physically in that way anyway, so he is doubly, triply, four times, five times behind these these walls, but he still has this affection for them. They don't know that he's a poet. He doesn't go around saying, here, leaves of grass, leaves of grass. He sits down, he reads the Bible to someone who wants them to read the Bible to them. Uh, he writes letters, as I said, to the families to, for kids who can't write or um, or who just never learned to. They're either wounded and they can't, or they just never learned to write. Um, and there's the sense in one of his biographies where it says that the great personableness, the great public figure, the great unifying figure, the great uh, democratizer, the figure that he, the persona that he creates through his poetry, um, this is the place where it is actually fulfilled in a hospital with the dead, the dying, and the wounded uh, coming back from the front of a war, of a horrible war. And, uh, and that means something. And I think the line in the biography says Whitman got his wish, uh, but he got it in a charnel house. And that's just a devastating line for me. Um, and I take great lessons from Whitman's loneliness, from his longing, from his immense persona of just, uh, of just reaching out and grabbing everything and turning it into words. And I take great solace from perhaps a great deal of that being an act, being a wish, being something that he fantasizes about, and yet he still goes home uh, by himself, and uh, nobody knows quite who he is, even though I guess in his old age he was able to, to have an experience of people at least visiting him as a sort of wise man. Uh, before he died. Um, and so I would just, perhaps this is the good way to end this, because the, the lesson that I take from Whitman is that it's both things. It is that Whitman still remained a poet. He still kept writing his poetry. He still was interested in all the subjects of his time, literature, science, history, um, all of that. Uh, but at the same time, he saw that the other entry into humanity was uh, outside of all of it. Uh, the poetry does not matter. Um, but perhaps some of it is gasping, dying for want of love. Perhaps uh, the poetry and the culture and all of that are wedges. And that sometimes you do need to just step away and step back and just sit down with someone and listen to the words that are coming out of their mouth and the stories 
that they are telling. And I think that actually a very good poem to end this with, this uh, episode with, is a poem of Whitman's called O Me, O Life. Because it does say everything I think that I've been mentioning here is that uh, the poetry doesn't matter, but everyone can have a poetic moment. And we all have stories that are worth listening to and worth telling. We all have these great dramas, these great difficulties, these great uncertainties, uh, when all it is at the bottom, uh, what do we want? Uh, love. We want uh, connection. We want to feel that we are important in other people's lives. And we want other people to feel that they are important in our lives. Um, we want our words to mean something. We want other people's words to mean something. We don't want to have uh, shuffled off this mortal coil, as John Keats says. We, want, we don't want to have died before our pen has gleaned our teeming brain. We don't all need to be writing it either. Whatever your pen is, whatever your brain is, uh, whatever is teeming there, get it out while you can and in whatever way you can. But thank you all for listening to this this week. Um, this has been something special to have come down here and done this tonight. And here is Mr. Whitman. Oh me, oh life. The questions of these recurring, of the endless trains of the faithless, of cities filled with the foolish, of myself, forever reproaching myself, for who more foolish than I, and who more faithless, of eyes that vainly crave the light, of the objects mean of the struggle ever renewed, of the poor results of all, of the plodding and sordid crowds I see around me, of the empty and useless years of the rest, with the rest me intertwined, the question, O oh me, so sad, recurring, what good amid these, O oh me, O oh life? answer that you are here, that life exists and identity, that the powerful play goes on and you will contribute the verse. Any comments or suggestions for readings I should make in future episodes can be emailed to Human Voices Wake Us, the number one, at gmail.com. Links to each work used in this episode can be found in the episode description. If you enjoy Human Voices Wake Us, you can subscribe wherever you find your podcasts. The music here is Duke Ellington's Arabesque Cookie.